I want to briefly conclude all the things we've been talking about with both Don and myself and the movies that we've seen and all that. I want to conclude by reading a section from the Master's talk called The Essence of Religion, which is one of my very, very favorite writings on the path, and I read it constantly, so I'm sure some of you will have heard it before. Maybe all of you. Uh, Maybe many times. This talk, it's funny, my trips to India in Kripal's lifetime were bounded by two conferences. Our first trip was in 1965, in February, to the Third World Religions Conference. And my last trip in Kripal's lifetime was in 1974 at the Unity of Man Conference. And yesterday I read the talk that Master gave at that last conference but this talk he gave at the World Religions Conference in 1965 and it's extremely relevant to all that we've been talking about all the religions agree that life light and love are the three phases of the supreme source of all that exists These essential attributes of the divinity that is one, though designated differently by the prophets and peoples of the world, are also wrought in the very pattern of every sentient being. It is in this vast ocean of love, light, and life that we live, have our very being, and move about, and yet, Strange as it may seem, like the proverbial fish in water, we do not know this truth and much less practice it in our daily life. And hence the endless fear, helplessness, and misery that we see around us in the world, in spite of all our laudable efforts and sincere strivings to get rid of them. Love is the only touchstone wherewith we can measure our understanding of the twin principles of life and light in us and how far we have traveled on the path of self-knowledge and God-knowledge. God is love. The soul in man is a spark of that love. And love, again, is the link between God and man on the one hand and man and God's creation on the other. It is therefore said, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Similarly, Guru Gobind Singh says, Verily I say unto thee, that he whose heart is bubbling over with love, he alone shall find God. Love, in a nutshell, is the fulfillment of the law of life and light. All the prophets, all the religions, and all the scriptures hang on two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Questioned as to our attitude toward our enemies, Christ said, Love thine enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. 
that ye may be the children of your Father in heaven. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. With the yardstick of love, the very essence of God's character, with us, let us probe our hearts. Is our life an efflorescence of God's love? Are we ready to serve one another with love? Do we keep our hearts open to the healthy influences coming from outside? Are we patient and tolerant toward those who differ from us? Are our minds coextensive with the creation of God and ready to embrace the totality of his being? Do we bleed inwardly at the sight of the downtrodden and the depressed? Do we pray for the sick and suffering humanity? If we do not do any of these things, we are yet far removed from God and from religion, no matter how loud we may be in our talk and pious in our platitudes and pompous in our proclamations. With all our inner craving for peace, we have failed and failed hopelessly to serve the cause of God's peace on earth. Ends and means are interlocked and cannot be separated from each other. We cannot have peace so long as we try to achieve it with warlike means and with the weapons of destruction and extinction. With the germs of hatred in our hearts, racial and color bars rankling within us, thoughts of political domination and economic exploitation surging in our bloodstream, we are working for wrecking the social structure which we have so strenuously built and not for peace, unless it be peace of the grave, but certainly not for a living peace born of mutual love and respect, trust and concord that may go to ameliorate mankind and transform this earth into a paradise for which we so fervently pray and preach from pulpits and platforms, and yet, as we proceed, it recedes away into the distant horizon. Where then lies the remedy? Is the disease past all cure? No, it is not so. Life and light of God are still there, to help and guide us in the wilderness. We see this wilderness around us because we are bewildered in the heart of our hearts and do not see things in their proper perspective. This vast outer world is nothing but a reflex of our own little world within us. The seeds of discord and disharmony in the soil of our mind bear fruit in and around us and do so in abundance. We are what we think and see the world with the smoke-colored glasses that we choose to put on. It is a proof positive of one thing only, that we have so far not known the life and light of God and much less realized God in man. We are off-center in the game of life. We are playing it at the circumference only, and never have a dip in the deepest waters of life at the center. This is why we constantly find ourselves caught 
in the vortex of the swirling waters on the surface. The life at the circumference of our being is in fact not different from the life at the center of our being. The two are in fact not unidentical, yet when one is divorced from the other, they look dissimilar. Hence the strange paradox. The physical life, though a manifestation of God, is full of toil and turmoil, storm and stress, dissipation and disruption. In our enthusiasm and zest for outer life on the plane of the senses, we have strayed too far away from our center. Nay, we have altogether lost sight of it. And worse still, have cut the very moorings of our bark. And no wonder then we find ourselves tossing helplessly on the sea of life. Rudderless and without a compass to guide our course, we are unwittingly a prey to chance winds and waters and cannot see the shoals, the sandbanks, and the submerged rocks with which our way is strewn. In this frightful plight, we are drifting along the onrushing current of life. Where? We don't know. This world, after all, is not and cannot be so bad as we take it to be. It is a manifestation of the life principle of the Creator and is being sustained by His light. His love is at the bottom of all this. The world with its various religions is made for us and we are to benefit from them. One cannot learn swimming on dry land. All that we have to do is to correctly learn and understand the basic live truths as are embodied in our scriptures and practice them carefully under the guidance of some theocentric saint. These scriptures came into being by God-inspired prophets, and as such, some God-intoxicated person or a God-man can give us a proper interpretation of them, initiate us into their right import by reconciling the seeming discrepancies in thought and finally help us inwardly on the God path. Without such a practical guidance, both without and within, we are trapped in the magic spell of forms and minds and cannot possibly reach at the esoteric truths lying under a mass of verbiage of the bygone ages and now solidified into fossils with the lapse of time into institutionalized forms, formulae, and formularies of the ruling class. And we're going to skip over much of the rest of the talk, although it is, it's very great talk indeed. Um, and just read his conclusion. We must then sit together as members of the one great family of man so that we may understand each other. We are above everything else one. From the level of God as our father, from the level of man as his children, and from the level of worshipers of the same truth or power of God called by so many names. In this august assembly of the spiritually awakened, 
we can learn the great truth of oneness of life vibrating in the universe. If we do this, then surely this world with so many forms and colors will appear a veritable handiwork of God, and we shall verily perceive the same life impulse enlivening all of us. As his own dear children embedded in him, like so many roses in his rose bed, let us join together in sweet remembrance of God and pray to him for the well-being of the world in this hour of imminent danger of annihilation that stares us in the face. May God, in his infinite mercy, save us all, whether we deserve it or not. And I have always found that closing sentence to be one of the most powerful in my experience ever said by anybody. Um, I want to read a brief section from Master's Kripal Circular Number 10, which is ostensibly about diet. It's called Spiritual Aspect of the Vegetarian Diet. And a lot of it is about food, but a lot of it is not also. And uh, this is part of the section which is also always meant a great deal to me. He said, Master says, we have all been created by God. All of us are embodied souls. Soul is of the same essence as that of God, and God is in all of us, and we should therefore love one another. That is what St. Paul taught all his life. It is written in the Quran, O human beings, do good. Be good to your parents, relatives, orphans, the needy and the poor, your neighbors and your fellow beings. Such a life pleases Allah. Allah is within each one of us. The haughty one who is selfish is not cared for by God. A master saint always enjoins, and this is a very interesting list. He has ten things here, and he really covers the ground. One, love and reverence for all creation from highest to the lowest. Two, observance of nonviolence even in the depths of the heart. Three, truthfulness. Four, Non-injury to one's feelings by thoughts, words, symbols, and by deed. Five, kindly treatment toward all. Six, cheery temperament. Seven, faith in the innate goodness in man, which to me is very powerful. You know, it's the philosophical substratum that underlies the idea of nonviolence. Eight, avoidance from giving bad names to others. Nine, non indulgence in slanderous and amorous talks and idle pursuits. Ten, avoid accusations, for they boomerang with greater intensity. If one is keen for God-realization, then one must not hurt anyone's feelings, for heart is the seed of God. Have you ever realized that a mango seed, when embedded, gathers all the sweetness from the soil, 
while a pepper seed attracts all the bitterness in it. As a man thinks, so he becomes. Nothing is good or bad in the world, but our thinking makes it so. We, like the one or the other of the seeds, draw upon impulses from the atmosphere as suits our own mental makeup. We have in Mahabharata the great epic poem of ancient India that outer signs of a chaste and clean life are good deeds. Just as a tree is known by the fruit it bears, so is a man by what he does. This is a great teaching of a great value. It helps a man to flourish and receive a good name both here and hereafter. He will be the friend of all creatures for he resolves not to hurt or kill any of them, not even the humble bee nor the lowly ant. Such a person will surely know the truth one day. Prince Dharadrashtra, the son of Koro, the mighty king of Bharat, once hurled a rebuke on Gandiva, the great bow of Arjuna, the Pandu prince. Arjuna got angry and, touched to the quick, put his arrow on the Gandiva. Lord Krishna, who happened to be near at hand, asked Arjuna what he was doing. Arjuna replied that he, as a Kshatriya prince, had taken a vow that if anyone would say a word against my mighty bow, I would not spare him. Lord Krishna said, O Arjuna, could you tell me the fruit of dharma or righteousness? Is it pain or pleasure? Arjuna replied that dharma or righteousness consisted only in the resultant love and harmony. So one must first think of the result before doing or even contemplating any deed. It will certainly prolong one's span of life. And that story has always um, resonated with me. For one thing, I can get into the kind of situation that Arjuna was in very easily. And what Master is saying there, well, what Lord Krishna is saying, which Master is confirming is that what seems to us to be righteous, to be the right thing for one reason or another, such as we took a vow in connection with it, may not be righteous when you consider what the result of it will be when it happens. And it's a very simple teaching, but it cuts through a whole lot of stuff. And I have, I'm sorry to say, sometimes totally forgotten it and gotten involved in doing exactly what Arjuna did. And hopefully I'm not like that anymore, hopefully. We were talking last night about, I was talking about my self-righteousness on the path when I was first initiated and all that stuff. I was reminded that there's a Gilbert and Sullivan lyric from Trial by Jury, which always seemed to me to sum up exactly how the state we get into. The jury is singing it to the defendant, okay, who has just explained why he has done what he has done. And the jury advances on him threateningly and sings, Oh, I was like that when a lad, a shocking young scamp of a rover. I behaved like a regular cad, but that sort of thing is all over. I am now a respectable chap, and I shine with a virtue resplendent, and therefore I haven't a rap of sympathy with the defendant. <laughs> and that's... Uh, I always to me, sums up so well exactly what we get into. 
I, I mean, I, when I smoked, you know, I, I was so annoyed when people would ask me not to smoke. If I went to visit a friend and I couldn't smoke in their apartment, I wouldn't go in. I'd think if they liked me, they'd put up with my smoke. Then, of course, I stopped smoking. And, uh, and I got very annoyed. I really got angry at people who smoked around me. Uh, on the grounds that I now knew better. Something like that. Anyway, a lot of stuff which we get into. I want to conclude the whole weekend as well as this satsang by reading the final circular letter that Master Kripal Singh ever issued on the unity of man. It was dated May 15, 1974 and uh, he left just three months later. And this was his last major communication to us all and it will I think include in itself all the stuff we've been hearing and listening to and reading etc he says man the highest rung of all creation is basically the same everywhere all men are born the same way receive all the bounties of nature in a similar manner have the same inner and outer construction and are controlled in the physical body by the same power, called differently as God, word, nam, etc. All men are the same as souls, worship the same God and are conscious entities. Being of the same essence as God, they are members of his family and thus related to each other as brothers and sisters in him. Two, all awakened and enlightened gurus and spiritual teachers who came to this world at various points of time and in various parts have invariably emphasized this truth in their own language and manner. According to them, all human beings despite their distinctive social orders and denominational religions, form but one class. Three, Guru Nanak, the great teacher and messiah of peace, said, the highest order is to rise into universal brotherhood, I to consider all creation your equal. Four, India's ancient mantra, Vasudeva Kutambukam, also lays down the same principle that the whole world is one family. However, it is common knowledge that despite long and loud preaching by various religious and social leaders professing the unity of man, the world today is torn by strains and tensions of every kind and presents a sorrowful spectacle indeed. More often than not, we see individuals at war with one another and brothers at drawn daggers with their own kith and kin. Similarly, nations are constantly involved in conflicts and clashes with each other, thus spoiling the peace and tranquility. It seems that the root cause of this present-day situation is that the gospel of unity of man, however well accepted in theory, has not struck home to humanity at large and has not put into practice. 
It is only a form of slogan-mongering done with calculated motives. Five, it is universally accepted that the highest purpose of this human body is to achieve union of the soul with the oversoul or God. It is on this account that the physical body is said to be the true temple of God wherein he himself resides. All religions spell out the ways and means of meeting the oversoul or God, and all the ways and means so suggested, however different looking, lead to the same destination, so that one need not change from one religion to another for this purpose. One has only to steadfastly and genuinely tread upon the lines drawn by the torchbearers for achieving the goal. Six, it is necessary, however, that greater effort should be made toward the realization of unity of man. We have to realize that every human being is as much a member of the brotherhood as we are and is obviously entitled to the same rights and privileges as are available to us. We must therefore make sure that while our own children make merry, our neighbor's son does not go without food. And if we really practice this, much present-day conflict will be eliminated. Each of us will develop mutual recognition, respect, and understanding for the other, thus wiping out the gross inequities of life. In this process, as the mutual recognition and understanding develops, it becomes a vital force generating a reservoir of fellow feeling, which in turn will bring culture and ultimately humility, the basic need of the hour. Seven, the holding of the World Conference on Unity of Man in February 1974 in New Delhi was a clarion call to the world. This conference was perhaps the first of its kind since the time of Ashoka the Great, held at the level of man with the noble purpose of fostering universal brotherhood leading to universal harmony. This message of the unity of man must reach every human heart, irrespective of religious and social labels, so that it comes home to every individual enabling him to actually put it in practice in life and pass it on to others. In this way, the entire human society could be reformed. Truly speaking, unity already exists. As man, born in the same way, with the same privileges from God, and as soul, a drop of the ocean of all consciousness called God, whom we worship by various names. But we have forgotten this unity. The lesson has only to be revived. Eight, the so-called worldwide campaign for unity of man is not intended to affect the existing social and religious orders in any manner. In fact, each one has to continue to work for the upliftment of man in its own way as before. Additionally, however, this campaign has to carry the clarion call 
of unity of man to as large a mass of humanity through its own vehicle as it can, so that the message cuts across the barriers of misunderstanding and mutual distrust and strikes home to every human heart. Further, the said campaign has to be carried out, not by intellectual wrestling, but with optimum desire and anxiety to put the unity of man into practice so that it becomes a real living force. The method of propagation has to be by self-discipline and self-example rather than by declarations and proclamations. Nine, it would be prudent to clarify that the campaign for unity of man has to be carried out above the level of religions without in any way affecting any religious or social orders. It has to obtain in practice the blessings and support of all those who believe in the gospel of unity of man and could give it strength by taking this gospel to every human heart around them and convincing them of the need of its acceptance in daily life. It will neither be tagged with Ruhani Satsang nor with any other similar organization. The enthusiasm of its admirers will be the real force working behind the campaign. 10. It is therefore earnestly requested that all those who believe in the unity of man and wish to carry its message must work ceaselessly so that it may reach the lonest corner of the world. A World Conference on Unity of Man may be arranged in the West, as was done at Delhi in the East. Both ultimately work as one whole. W-H-O-L-E, whole. So just in conclusion, I said earlier that um, this concept, these thoughts, I've been obsessing about them lately, that uh, it does seem to me that the world is headed in the wrong direction uh, at a very fast rate and that uh, the golden age, the Sat Yuga, is supposed to be built out of the Kali Yuga and we are supposed to build it. And uh, obviously reformers are needed, wanted, not of others but of themselves, as Master used to say all the time. And I do think that if every initiate of the Master, of any Master, lived on the level of what Master is talking about in these writings and really and truly lived a life, acted up to the principles of nonviolence and love for each other and a faith in the innate goodness of man and all the things that Master mentioned in that 10-point list that we would make a big change, that we would make a big difference in the world. I think that there is a tipping point here. People, some of the people who are working for exclusivism in religious, on a religious level, 
maintain that what they want is a tipping point, that is that enough people who think like they do get into positions of power, then everything will change. It doesn't require everybody doing it. It just requires enough. And I think that that basic concept is similar to what Master is saying to us. I think it's dead wrong the way they understand it, but the point is that if enough people, it doesn't have to be everybody, but if enough people really act, live up to the ideas of love, of nonviolence, of faith in the innate goodness of man, and cheery temperament even, being kind to it others, you know, viewing others not as impediments in our way or as uh, somebody we can gain something from. And Martin Buber used the term I and thou to distinguish I and it, which is often the way we relate to others. When we relate to other people, or animals for that matter too, including plants even, as an it, then we are sowing the seeds of disunity. When we relate to them from the point of view of we love our neighbor as ourself because our neighbor is ourself, then that's a whole different thing. And it doesn't necessarily take everybody. You know, it may not even take many people, but I think it takes everyone who is able to understand this must live up to it and must do it. I think that's Master's wish for us. And, uh, I mean, we, those of us who knew Kripal and loved him had the opportunity after Kripal left of sitting in the company of someone who did live up to this in its entirety, namely Jeb Singh. And we know that what a difference that one person made in our lives and in the alleviation of suffering in the world. But that was just one. Samhain Singh has said that a saint is lucky if he gets one or two genuine seekers in his whole lifetime. So let us make the Master very, very, very lucky. And let us all be uh, genuine seekers, even though both Kapal and Ajayv have left us physically. They haven't left us in reality. So let's make them happy that way. That's my thought. Anyway, God bless us all. Yeah.